This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. If you don't know... Uh, what this topic is going to be about today, you're losing your mind. And for you guys who don't know, I'm Jim Pruitt, your host, aka PharmD in the ED. And we're going to be talking about coronavirus, COVID, whatever you want to call it, SARS. Uh, it's going to be in every hospital right now, talked about. There's tons of meetings going on, ton of meetings that's going to be canceled because of COVID 19. And we got to set the record straight. There's a lot of panic going on, there's a lot of things that are happening. And we kind of want to put all the information out there. And you know how I do. I'm not going to be talking about this. I'm going to have someone come on who knows a lot more about this stuff than me. And this is one of my co-residents from PGY1, one of the smartest people that I know. So without further ado, go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Hello, everyone. My name is Elena DeCurligan. Thank you for that really sweet intro, Jimmy. I'm an infectious diseases clinical specialist. And I want to start by saying that I am in no way an expert on COVID-19. I don't think anyone could truly claim to be an expert at this time because we're dealing with something that's so new. With my background in ID, I just did my best to sift through all the information that's available and what we have so far to try to make the best informed decision about how we should be treating patients. It's also really important to say up front that there's new information that's coming out every single day. So what Jimmy and I are discussing today might change next week or even tomorrow. So always be looking for new information. Absolutely. Thank you, Lena. So before we even get really deep into all the information, can we just break down what is COVID-19? So COVID-19 is a new strain of coronavirus that was first identified in December 2019 in Wuhan, China. So the the disease was initially named Coronavirus Disease 2019, which gave us the abbreviation COVID-19. And the virus itself has since been renamed Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, huge mouthful, so we're going to abbreviate it SARS-CoV-2. So that's why you might see some different terminology thrown around for it. So what we do know is it's related to prior SARS coronaviruses. Um, So the first one, which was identified in 2003 and caused a huge outbreak. Um, And also the Middle Eastern coronavirus or MERS. So they have between 50 and 79% genetic similarity there. So a lot of the data that we're going to be using to develop our treatments now are related to what we know about the prior coronavirus strains. So we do know that it's most closely related to two SARS-like coronaviruses in bats with almost 90% genetic similarity. And so the initial cases and spread of this new uh, COVID-19 were linked to a seafood market in Wuhan, China. And there are bats and bat droppings in that area and the surrounding region, which is consistent with what we know about the genetics. So a lot of talk is out there about how this thing is going to be spread. And there's a lot of different people who are putting patients on respiratory precautions, droplet precautions. So before we get deep into that, what is the method of transmission of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2? So this virus is spread through human-to-human transmission. And this can be through droplets or direct contact. 
um, with a surface that was previously infected with an infected droplet. So we have limited data so far on the actual survival time of this new SARS-CoV-2 on um, different surfaces. But what we do know is that prior coronaviruses can survive on inanimate surfaces for up to nine days. And it's very likely that this viral strain is going to be very similar. In one study of COVID-19 infected patients, researchers were able to isolate the virus on many surfaces, so the fan, toilet, floor, door handle, etc., and that was without any cleaning of the patient's room. The good news was that the virus was not isolated outside of the patient's room or in the hallway, and also in similar patients in the study, when they introduced proper cleaning techniques of um, patients with COVID-19, the virus was not isolated on any surfaces. So this reiterates what has been discussed thus far of the importance of properly cleaning. There's a lot of individuals. We just had St. Patty's Day was today. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on, especially the younger individuals. And the questions come up, is it possible for asymptomatic patient to spread the infection? The data that we have so far shows that transmission can occur with asymptomatic carriers. The mean incubation period for this infection is around six days in humans, but anywhere from one to 20 days has been thrown around so far in literature. So infected patients can spread the virus before they have symptoms develop, and it also can be spread by patients who remain asymptomatic for their entire course. So it's possible that the high transmission rates of this virus are related to the transmission through asymptomatic individuals. And early estimations from China are proposing that almost one-third of infected individuals might be asymptomatic. That's cool. And I think it's key that you, that you mentioned that because there's a lot of individuals out there that are partying, having a good time, and they're thinking that they can't potentially be part of this. And asymptomatic care is going to be a key part of this infection. But when talking about that, there's a lot of numbers being thrown around out there. So can you kind of go into what are the current statistics on the number of patients that are actively infected right now? So this is going to be changing every single day. But as of March 17th, The data that I could identify from the World Health Organization shows that over 167,000 cases have been reported worldwide, with an overall mortality rate of around 3.9% so far based on the number of reported deaths. They're updating their website daily with new information, so we can be constantly checking the WHO website for that. The CDC has reported 4,226 cases in the U.S. to date with 75 deaths and an associated mortality rate for the U.S. of 1.8% so far based on this number of reported deaths. And the CDC is updating their website during all weekdays and most state departments are updating their websites as well. So please keep in mind that the mortality rates thus far might continue to increase because a lot of the patients who have been tested as positive are still receiving care at this time. I also wanted to clear up some previous confusion about the difference between CDC reported numbers and the numbers that are being reported by state departments or local news stations. So the CDC was previously performing uh, confirmation tests on all isolates that were positive identified by the state. 
Um, and this was causing a pretty big delay as all of the isolates had to be tested multiple times before the CDC would confirm it and add it to our number of cases. They've since changed that requirement, so we should be seeing less of a lag time now. Yeah, that's been something that a lot of people on Twitter and social media has been kind of reaching out about, about how long it's going to take. And I think these confirmatory tests and taking a little while has definitely been something to consider. I've seen numbers thrown out there uh, anywhere from 24 to 72 hours to get these confirmatory tests back before we can actually have this. So there's definitely a lag. Now, everything happening day by day. I've seen San Francisco shut the city down. I've seen a lot of cities and states getting ready to shut things down. New York's one of those as well. A lot of people are thinking to themselves, hey, this is not necessary. So is it really necessary to shut down schools and cancel public events? Like, you know, I want to go to the baby shower too, but is it really necessary for this to happen? So the current measures that are being implemented might seem very drastic, especially to people that are in areas that have seen little to no cases so far. But the goal here is to decrease spread before we get to overwhelming numbers. So what we saw in Europe was a very drastic increase in cases from the end of February to the beginning of March. The number of patients infected at a time overwhelmed the healthcare system there, most notably in Italy. So there have been over 24,000 cases reported so far in Italy, with an associated mortality rate of 7.3%, which is much higher than what the rest of the world has reported. And this is likely attributed to how quickly the increase occurred and the overwhelming of the healthcare system. So hopefully, with the combination of limiting the size of groups at public events, canceling some of these large events that were scheduled, and the proper use of social distancing, we can prevent a steep rise in cases in the U.S. and then avoid overwhelming our healthcare system here. Yeah, that's something I've been, I'm fortunate to work in two different ERs within the state of Georgia, and I've been seeing, you know, vastly different things in, within the public and within the, the healthcare system itself. And uh, I'm definitely all for social distancing to that. Now that we kind of talked about some of the stats and some of the things to kind of consider, individuals want to know, who are these at-risk individuals? So which patients are the most at risk for contracted COVID-19? So some of the most vulnerable populations identified so far are elderly patients, as well as those with prior immunocompromising conditions and any comorbidities such as hypertension or diabetes. That's something to consider as well. And when we're talking about the, the symptoms, what are they? Because there's been a lot of talk about what people should come in the hospital for and what are actually symptoms of this. So can you kind of give the audience a little bit more about what symptoms are associated with a COVID-19 infection? So most of the symptoms we're going to be seeing are very consistent with those of other respiratory viral illnesses. The most commonly reported symptom so far is fever. Anywhere from 80 to 90% of patients will present with fever, depending on the paper that you're looking at. So cough is another commonly reported symptom, up to 80% of patients. And then other less commonly reported symptoms are shortness of breath, rhinorrhea, muscle aches, and confusion. Gastrointestinal symptoms are relatively uncommon with what has been reported of COVID-19 so far, but it has been reported in up to 3% of patients. What other laboratory tests and diagnostics are used to diagnose COVID-19? 
So the official COVID-19 tests are being provided by the CDC to state laboratories. So every hospital should have either in place or be developing a process for screening patients and obtaining tests from state labs. If we're talking about radiological findings, what's present in around 50% of patients on admission are ground glass opacities that are present in a bilateral capacity. A lot of patients are not showing radiological findings up front, but these may develop over the infection course. Some of the common lab abnormalities that are being reported so far are lymphopenia, which has been present in up to 80% of patients in some uh, clinical studies shown so far. And we're also seeing elevations in CRP and LFT abnormalities. Now we're getting to the point where A lot of people are pretty interested in this. So we talked about how the numbers, the epidemiology, we've talked about the diagnosis. We talked about a lot of the risk factors. Now, the farm so hard part of this, what are some of the possible treatment options when looking at COVID-19? So I want to stress up front that everything we have is experimental at this point. So we're going to use the term treatment very loosely. The mainstay of therapy for treating COVID-19 patients is still supportive care, just as it is in other respiratory viral illnesses, but there are some agents with possible benefits based on either in vitro activity or some very limited clinical data. Um, Also, I want to say up front that in vitro data so far has shown that once patients reach a very high peak viral load, antiviral therapies did not have any benefit. So if you're planning on treating patients, consider starting before they begin clinically deteriorating because it might be too late at that point. So what might be a better option is to consider some of the prior factors that increase the risk of a severe illness and use that up front with determining how your treatment course should go. So the first agent that I want to tell you about is remdesivir. This agent was originally developed for possible treatment of Ebola. This is a nucleotide analog that functions as an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase functions as an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase inhibitor. In vitro studies have shown that it causes RNA chain termination after it's incorporated, and then three nucleotides are incorporated after it. So it's thought that the allowance for these additional three nucleotides to be incorporated kind of protects it from excision by viral exonucleases and therefore can increase its efficacy. So some in vitro studies with MERS, SARS, and the new SARS-CoV-2 have shown that rindesivir can reduce the rate of viral replication. So there are multiple clinical trials ongoing in China right now with rindesivir, and there's also one multicenter study ongoing in the U.S., So although remdesivir is not currently FDA approved, it is available for compassionate use through Gilead. It's administered as 200 milligrams intravenously on day one, and then 100 milligrams IV for a full course of anywhere from five to 10 days. Since it's an investigational drug, there's limited information available so far on adverse effects, but hypotension and amylase elevation were two potential adverse events that I found reported so far. So apparently you have to like sell four of your toes to get access to this medication. Can you elaborate on that? 
I will point out that obtaining this drug requires a fairly extensive process that requires initial approval through Gilead, formal emergency investigational new drug or EIND approval through the FDA, and then a final approval through Gilead. So this process can take anywhere from three to five days to receive all the approvals needed and actually obtain the drug to use in a patient. So keep that in mind because a lot can happen during that time frame with your patient's clinical course. The requirements for patients to actually qualify to get remdesivir from Gilead. So they have to be inpatient with a confirmed diagnosis of COVID-19 and requiring mechanical ventilation. So exclusion criteria we know include evidence of multi-organ failure, pressors to maintain blood pressure, AST and ALT more than five times the upper limit of normal, creatinine clearance less than 30, hemodialysis, CVVHD, or the use of any other experimental antiviral agents for COVID-19. So reportedly, it's okay for your patients to be on an alternative agent before starting remdesivir, but you would just have to stop them when you are actually initiating the remdesivir. So it seems like your patient be sick enough to get the tube, but not sick enough to add on pressors and things of that nature. So that's very interesting. All right. So what else you got for us when it comes to investigational therapies? The next possible agent is lopinavir ritonavir or Kalitra. So lopinavir itself is a protease inhibitor with ritonavir added on as a booster. And this is most commonly used as a component of HIV therapy. So this agent was previously studied for SARS and MERS coronaviruses, and some of these studies have shown antiviral activity against coronavirus strains. However, one in vitro study did show that while remdesivir and interferon were both efficacious in decreasing viral replication, the addition of lopinavir to interferon did not confer any additional efficacy. So we do see some conflicting evidence from in vitro studies so far. One retrospective match cohort study of the prior SARS coronavirus published in 2003 showed that the addition of lopinavir-ritonavir to standard treatment was associated with a decreased mortality rate and intubation time when compared to standard treatment alone. So this makes the combination of lopinavir and ritonavir a pretty attractive option amongst the limited options that we have available right now. There was a retrospective cohort study of new COVID-19 patients in Wuhan, China, that showed that the use of lopinavir-ritonavir was not associated with a decrease in the duration of viral shedding. What is being used so far for a dose is lopinavir 400 milligrams with ritonavir 100 milligrams given as a combination tablet twice daily, um, and most of these studies are using it in combination with ribavirin. So it cannot be crushed, but there is a commercial liquid form that is available. It's important for us to remember that both lopinavir and ritonavir are cytochrome P450 inhibitors and can cause a lot of drug interactions, which is often very important in critically ill patients who are requiring so many medications at the same time. The adverse effects that we know about lopinavir-ritonavir are primarily related to GI upset, but it can also cause pancreatitis or hepatotoxicity. So hopefully some of these more severe adverse effects would not be an issue if we're just using it for short course therapy. 
Now that we've talked about Kalitra, there's been another agent that's been talked about within the FOMED community, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Can you give us a little bit more information about that? So these were first used as anti-malarial agents and later as long-term therapy for long-term therapy for rheumatological conditions. They're thought to have broad antiviral properties based on the in vitro data that we have so far on prior coronavirus strains. So the proposed mechanism of antiviral activity includes increasing the endosomal pH required for viral and cell fusion, as well as interfering with glycosylation of cellular receptors. So hydroxychloroquine is an active metabolite of chloroquine and is typically better tolerated. Studies for coronavirus have used both of these agents and their use is thought to be relatively interchangeable at this point. So people are tending to use whichever one they have access to. So for us in the U.S., this is most likely hydroxychloroquine, which is what I'll discuss more going forward. So there are some prior studies with both SARS and MERS, as I mentioned, which showed positive results. But more convincingly, a recent study that was published in Cell Research showed that both remdesivir and chloroquine effectively inhibit viral replication of the new SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. We also have some preliminary clinical data from around 100 COVID-19 patients that were treated with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which showed that use inhibited the exacerbation of pneumonia, improved lung imaging, promotes virus-negative conversion, and shortens the disease course when compared to standard treatment. There are multiple trials ongoing right now with both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, so we'll likely have a lot more information soon. The clinical trials ongoing in China are using hydroxychloroquine 400 milligrams daily for five days. So this is what we would most likely be using for our patients. Patients must have enteral access since it's only available PO. Make sure that your nurses are not crushing it at the bedside, but we can make an oral suspension in the pharmacy if patients are not able to swallow the tablets whole. It's important to note that both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine have narrow therapeutic indexes. So we should be using standardized dosing to limit the risk of toxicity. Most of the adverse effects that occur with hydroxychloroquine are during prolonged treatment courses, but some potential adverse effects to watch for include QT prolongation, bradycardia, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and LFT elevations. So hopefully we would not see these things in a short course, but it's still important to watch out for. These are some of the agents that I've seen at my shop, and it's definitely key to get your buyers on board, get ID involved, and making sure we have the right criteria for the screen and utilize this drug in these patients. I remember you was telling me about one more drug that works a little differently than most of the ones we've talked about so far. Give us a little insight into that. The last agent I want to discuss briefly is tocilizumab or Actimra. So this agent does not have antiviral properties itself, but it has been proposed as a potential treatment for cytokine storm that can develop in severe cases of COVID-19. Tocilizumab is an inhibitor of IL-6, which can be elevated in cytokine storm. There's an ongoing clinical trial in China that's comparing the use of tocilizumab to CRRT in cytokine storm, so hopefully we'll have some more data on this soon. There was preliminary results of a small cohort of 20 patients, which reported that 75% of these patients had a decrease in O2 requirements. 
However, this wasn't compared to anything, so it's really hard to determine how we can use this data. Some of the other agents that have been proposed include interferon, ribavirin, nidazoxanide, nofinavir, arbidiol, umafinavir, and oseltamivir. There's also a clinical trial in China investigating the effects of sildenafil. So these agents have a lot less data available at this time, but we might learn more about them in the coming months. Wow. So that was a ton of information. And I think that's what everyone's been looking for. Just wanted to kind of break down why are we using these agents? How do they work? And if there's any evidence behind any of those. Now, there's been a good talk about using the albuterol inhalers versus using nebulizers. Can you give us a little information about why we're making this drastic change for these patients? So mostly what's reported has been albuterol so far. But what I want to point out is that it's important to avoid any nebulizations in order to decrease the spread of viral particles. We want to limit the transmission risk for healthcare workers that are at the front lines actually caring for patients. So although they're in short supply right now, if you have a COVID-19 positive patient, try to use metered dose inhalers when available. We kind of talked about what to use in some of the supportive care but can you briefly just talk about, there's been a lot of conversation, especially recently, about drugs to avoid in COVID positive. So there's a lot of information we just don't know yet. But as you said, there are a lot of things that are being discussed so far. So I'll run through those. So corticosteroids, this is a very controversial topic. So prior studies have shown negative outcomes with corticosteroid use in respiratory viral infections. One study that was looking at the prior Middle Eastern or MERS coronavirus showed that corticosteroid therapy was associated with a significant delay in viral RNA clearance. We don't have data yet for the effect of corticosteroids on the new SARS-CoV-2 strain, but most experts at this time are currently recommending against the use of corticosteroids in patients with COVID-19 infections. This is a little more tricky when it comes to patients with underlying COPD or those that develop ARDS. So use clinical judgment in those cases. Now, what's the deal when talking about ACE inhibitors and ARBs in these patients that are COVID positive? So these are currently being discussed. In vitro, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is thought to use ACE2 as a binding site. So patients on ACE inhibitors have been shown to have increased production of ACE2 as a result of their ACE inhibitor therapy. So the current recommendation being proposed is to discontinue ACE inhibitors or ARBs in patients that are diagnosed with COVID-19 infections, just since there is a possibility that therapy may increase the rate of infection of host cells by the viral particles. This is probably a pretty easy task to do, as a lot of these patients are going to eventually develop sepsis and hypotension at some point during their infection course. The next agent I want to discuss are NSAIDs. So French authorities recently advised against the use of NSAIDs, as they may worsen the clinical course of coronavirus. So they haven't published any specific data related to this yet, but what we do know is we can postulate that this is likely related to an immunosuppressive effect similar to that of corticosteroids, but also possibly due to an upregulation of ACE2 similar to ACE inhibitors. 
So at this point, it would probably be a good idea to avoid NSAIDs in any patients that are COVID uh, positive at this time and just use acetaminophen instead. So how should we handle situations like cardiac arrest, RSIs for patients who are either suspected or confirmed COVID-19? So this is a really important topic to cover. And I think the answer to this question is going to differ a little bit based on the design of your hospitals and your ERs, as well as your standard workflow for code response, especially as far as pharmacists are involved. So all healthcare personnel that are actively resuscitating the patient should be wearing appropriate N95 masks, especially if the patient is not intubated. So I'm sure we all know that N95 masks are in shortage throughout the world. So that can pose as an issue. And hopefully intubating patients as quickly as possible if they weren't intubated prior to the code. And this can hopefully decrease the risk of aerosolization of viral particles. So the number of personnel inside patient rooms should be limited in order to both decrease the risk of exposure and also conserve our very limited supply of PPE materials. So one option proposed is to have the medicine components of the code cart kept outside of the room so that pharmacists or nursing personnel can be preparing medications outside of the room safely and then carefully passing them to personnel inside the room. So overall, just be prepared to discuss this workflow at your institution to make sure that everyone is prepared and knows what to do in a code situation with anyone who is either suspected or confirmed COVID. This is something that has come up a good bit, especially on Twitter. And it was a situation where I had recently where a patient that was getting ruled out for COVID went into cardiac arrest and we had to perform at, uh, kind of differently than we used to. And I had the cold cart outside of the room, preparing medications and hand them inside. And I think one of the key things, and there's a few messages going around in the ACCCP, PRN group for emergency medicine, uh, one of the key things to look out for is just making sure your team knows that you're still assuming that role and making sure that you're able to provide them with all of the supplies that you need. Uh, if you're handing over an epi, and you give them the epi and the flush, kind of giving them all the supplies that you would give them and kind of communicating in a, in, a, in, a, in a clear and effective way. So the next question that I have, how can, what can we do about the limited supplies of things like PPE and supplies of everything else that people are going out and just buying across the U.S. and the world in general? Yeah, so the level of public panic has led to some really crazy behavior. So everything from all the toilet paper hoarding to buying up massive amounts of medical supplies, including masks and cleaning supplies. So patients who use alcohol swabs on a daily basis for self-injection of medications are having difficulty finding them, and hospitals are having trouble obtaining masks. So there are even reports of um, patients coming in and stealing masks from emergency departments, stealing alcohol wipes and cleaning supplies. So what we can do is just try our best to encourage everyone to be mindful of the needs of others, only buy what you need for your family and what you would reasonably need as a one month supply, which is what the current recommendation is, and try to keep the members of the community informed that masks alone are not going to prevent spread of COVID-19. We have to encourage hand hygiene and social distancing instead. So in the hospital, we should be trying to 
limit the use of masks to essential personnel so we can conserve the limited supplies that we do have available. Right before we close out and your final thoughts, when talking about all this, what can we do to decrease the transmission of COVID-19? So we should be following all of the recommendations that have been provided by the CDC so far. So avoid handshaking, clean your hands often, avoid touching your face. I know that's a very difficult thing to do, especially when you're thinking about touching your face, all you wanna do is touch your face. So we should be covering coughs and sneezes, disinfect surfaces regularly, especially if they're shared surfaces, and handle all food carefully. Especially since going forward, a lot of people are going to be relying on Uber Eats and Postmates and things like that to get food. So we should be limiting travel to necessary reasons. Try to avoid spending time in crowded restaurants and bars. I know that a lot of us are young and healthy and we're relatively unconcerned about COVID-19 because we know that we would not have a high mortality risk if we actually contracted the virus. However, most of us are taking care of very high-risk patients, and we don't want to be the cause of someone else catching this COVID-19 virus. So there are also going to be a lot of meetings in the coming months with updates on patient care. So we should be using video conference methods as much as possible for meetings. And if you do need to have in-person meetings, we should be limiting those to less than 10 to 15 people wherever possible. And also try to have these meetings in more open, well-ventilated spaces. And the last thing we can do, if you or a family member is feeling sick, please stay home. So although our immune systems may limit the illness to very mild symptoms and we feel like we're still able to go to work, we may be carriers of the actual virus and spread it to other patients who have weakened immune systems. So in areas that are being hit really hard with the virus so far, there are reports of up to 10% of the workforce being out due to illness. So our workforce is already going to be stretched so thin and us spreading the virus amongst each other could be catastrophic. So whatever we can do to prevent infecting each other is so, so important right now. Elena, I know you've, you've, you gave a ton of information, but is there anything you want to leave with the audience before we close out for today? Well, I just want to thank everybody for listening. I know we're looking at a pretty difficult couple months coming up, but just keep your head down. Know that we're doing everything that we can to help save lives around the world and continue to just listen to as much relevant and reliable data as possible and help do whatever we can to keep the public calm and know that we are working hard to save them. Thank you again for coming onto the show. And I thank the audience for listening to another episode of Farm So Hard. There's a lot of information that we talked about today. And you know I have to hook you guys up with the show notes. All the information will be there. Uh, almost everything that we said will be kind of laid out in this fashion. It's a few articles that we have we, we have sit out there. So again, as you guys go about your day, just realize that you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to be in the ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. We're out.